Well, again, good morning. Take your Bible and open up to uh, John chapter 6. It's where we find ourselves this morning. John chapter 6. We're in verse 60. And I'll read through the end of the chapter. John chapter 6, starting in verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and in our life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted from, or granted him from the Father. And as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, do you not want to go away also? Or you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, again, we're thankful for an opportunity to worship you um, this morning together corporately. Again, we thank you for that privilege of gathering together as the body of Christ. And we're thankful for the message that you have uh, left for us uh, through the pen of John this morning for us to stop and to consider uh, our response to the bread of life, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, think clearly upon your word this morning and that by our time in your word, you would transform and change our lives, that you would even uh, this morning cause us to grow more in our knowledge of you and Christ and more in our love for you both. We again thank you for uh, allowing us to gather this morning to worship, to praise you, to adore you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I have to have a word of confession here this morning. I really had fully intended to say to you, I want you to turn to John chapter 6 for the conclusion of our study in John chapter 6. And I really tried to work hard to get there, but I just couldn't pull it off. Uh, We're going to be close, so I just wanted to give you a word of encouragement that we are working towards the end of the chapter. Uh, There's a whole lot in this portion of Scripture, just like in all of John and like all of the Bible, that I think is valuable for us to consider. So, Lord willing, I'll be saying that those words next week, and we'll actually uh, mean it. Now, in our ongoing study here of John 6, I have told you repeatedly the the theme really is um, uh, the sad issue of spiritual defection. Those who are attracted to Christ for a while and they follow him, they enjoy many benefits that he provides them and those that they can glean from him. But at some point, he makes a demand upon them that they will not tolerate. When they actually hear the word of Christ, they're going to turn their back upon him and turn their back upon the gospel, walk away from him and never follow him again. And unfortunately, that's a sad reality, spiritual defection. Uh, If you have been a Christian for any length of time, you are probably aware of that difficult reality. Someone you love, people who you love perhaps, uh, people you've poured your life into, people who make a profession of faith, and at some point, however, they walk away from the truth, they break fellowship, they walk away from from the church, they walk away from the gospel, and ultimately, they walk away from Christ. People do it for a variety of different reasons, I guess. Sometimes it's moral failure on a personal level, and unfortunately we're seeing more and more of that amongst so-called national leaders uh, in in the church. Sometimes it's perhaps due to unresolved doubts, maybe unanswered questions about the Bible and life. For example, unresolved conflicts and seeming contradictions between the creation account and what the Bible uh, says and that with uh, modern science. Uh, Sometimes people um, struggle with how a loving God can permit uh, all the evil that goes on in the world. Sometimes people go through difficulties and trials, experiences on a personal level that challenge their faith. And when God doesn't seemingly answer their prayer the way they want, 
or address that situation in a manner that they seem uh, or they see as favorable, sometimes people walk away. Sometimes people are betrayed by a close uh, Christian friend or a spouse, uh, someone whom you've been on an intimate, personal level with. They claim to follow Christ and they turn against you and then people tend to or sometimes walk away. Sometimes people who have been poorly mistreated by a fellowship, a church fellowship, uh, they, uh, again, poorly mistreated, turn from the faith. Sometimes people turn away because they want to avoid persecution at whatever level. Uh, The pressure from the world becomes too much. They turn their back upon Christ. Or the allurements of the world are, are too great. People want what they want. They don't want any restrictions that the Lord might place upon them, so they flee from Christ and they they turn back to the world. There's probably any number of reasons that uh, people give, complex reasons perhaps, why people walk away from Christ, but not a one of them is found in this portion of Scripture. The issue in this Scripture, I've told you from day one, starting this chapter, is more direct than that. The cause for spiritual defection in John chapter 6 is because of what Jesus says. That's the issue. Again, it's not any of the things that I previously mentioned. It was the words of Jesus. It wasn't his works. The crowd enjoyed his works. The crowd enjoyed the benefits that they received from him, whether it be healing for their body or food for their bellies. It was the specific words that they objected to. And our text, again, comes this morning uh, that we're going to look at, comes after the issue of the feeding of the, of the multitude, then the Lord's discourse Uh, that ends up there at the synagogue of Capernaum where he speaks to them after feeding them physically he speaks to them of the fact that he is the bread of life that great sermon that we've been working our way through the last few times starts in verse 32 runs down there to about verse 59 where Jesus speaks of his death his resurrection that where Jesus condemns really their false religious uh, works their false religion of works righteousness where he declares to them that he and he alone is the source of eternal life that he has come down from heaven in order to save, and that men must acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy, confess their sin, and abandon their false religion, to abandon their false uh, religious system of Judaism, and to commit themselves to him in total for uh, eternal salvation, to believe upon him alone as the Holy One of God. And, And Christ proclaimed that truth over and over again, and he proclaimed it unapologetically. It's interesting to me that he did not accommodate his message to the listeners' preferences. He just straightforwardly proclaimed the gospel truth. And when anybody does that, when any preacher powerfully preaches the word of God unapologetically, there's going to be a result of one of three responses. One of three responses. Sometimes people listen and they immediately reject what they hear and they turn away, just like the religious leaders of Israel. Sometimes people listen to the preaching of the message, and sometimes people listen and they respond with a temporary or a shallow faith. They're really false disciples, false followers of Christ, curiosity seekers that are at some level superficially attracted to him. But then again, when he makes demands upon them, or they find out that there really is a cost to be paid for them to follow him, they turn their back on him and they walk away from him. They they don't want to let go of those things, again, they love in the world, or they don't want to deny themselves. And finally, the third group that responds to the powerful preaching of the word, uh, a small group that responds with genuine saving faith. Uh, They believe upon Christ. They believe upon Christ in, in a saving fashion that he is... Uh, the Son of God, that he alone is the Messiah. And and that's, again, the way it is in general when people are confronted with the truth. Some immediately reject. Some come for a short period of time and walk away. Only a few actually believe the message. Now, here in the text uh, that we're working our way through, you have the religious leaders of Israel rejecting the message before he even concludes the sermon. So these are the people who get up in the back row before the sermon's over and they walk out of the room because they've had enough of it. They're not even going to wait till the end, right? So Jesus hasn't even concluded the sermon and the religious leaders start grumbling against him. Look back up there at verse 51, murmuring, grumbling. The Jews, again, the religious leaders, as John refers to them, the Jews therefore were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down out of heaven. Verse 42, uh, they were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say now, I have come down out of heaven? 
So again, that response was pretty typical of his entire Galilean ministry. Although Jesus taught and preached and performed miracles through the villages and cities of that area, uh, performing many miracles in their midst. Remember, he turned water into wine. He healed a nobleman's son. He fed the, fed the hungry multitude. He did these things that validated his deity and then it credited uh, his divine mission. Yet the vast majority of the people in Galilee, like other regions, refused to believe upon him. And their willful rejection of him is inexcusable. You might remember over in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus sternly rebuked two Galilean cities, Chorazan and Bethsaida, for the hardness of heart. Matthew 11:20 says, when he began to reproach the cities, or then he began to reproach the cities in which most of the miracles, his miracles were done because they did not repent. Christ speaks, says, woe to you, Chorazan, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, it will, will it not be, uh, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sidon, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. He rebukes these cities where he's done his miracles because their willful rejection of him is inexcusable. And that's the way it is in this text that we're about to work our way through. As Jesus concludes the sermon, there's going to be two responses, two reactions to the conclusion of his sermon, where he has proclaimed himself to be the bread of life. Again, there's going to be those who outright reject what he says in total and are going to walk away from him. Uh, There's going to be a subsection of that same group who ultimately end up in the same uh, uh, category uh, that here uh, have heard to a moment, but now they also are going to reject. They at one time perhaps referred to themselves or called themselves as disciples, but those are really uh, false claims. They weren't genuine. They weren't following him in a genuine salvific fashion. And and again, they're going to be driven from him because of the truth that he speaks. The gospel is an offense. As I read out of 1 Corinthians, the gospel is an offense to them. It's a stumbling block. It's foolishness to the world. And then at the end, we're going to see those who are true followers of Christ. Those who listen with ears that hear, and those who, in spite of the difficult things that he says, won't follow, follow, fall away from him. They're going to believe in him. They're going to follow him completely because they know that he alone has the words of eternal life. But first, the reaction of the false followers, the, the false disciples. Uh, again, the Jewish religious leaders have already made up their mind, but these people who've been following Jesus for a while, uh, verse 16. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Many of his mathetes, disciples, learners, pupils. The word refers refers to somebody who attaches themselves to a teacher as a learner. The, The word doesn't have any kind of implication in it that they were true followers of Christ. It doesn't imply, the word mathetes, disciple, doesn't imply anything about the disciples' sincerity or devotion to their teacher, just that they were following him. So the disciples here are, in verse 60, are distinguished from those uh, later on in verse 67, uh, the 12, that's what Jesus refers to them as, uh, the true followers, his true disciples. Now I've told you previously there are large crowds of people that are following Jesus, uh, especially very early on in his ministry. They're fascinated with the sensational. They're fascinated with the the fact that he can heal their diseases. And on two separate occasions recorded in the Gospels, uh, he fed large groups of people. And as one commentator has said, they were thrill-seekers but not truth-seekers. They were there for the show. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? When they heard this, the question is when they heard what? Well, I think it's all the things that he's just previously said. All the things that he said in that uh, sermon where he declares himself to be the bread of life. Where he has come to the crowd who, again, is looking for breakfast, and he provides them what they really need, which is spiritual truth. He presents himself to the crowd and, again, to the Jewish religious leaders as the bread of life. He is offering freely eternal salvation to whoever wants it. And he is warning them at the same time. Look at verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat 
the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. Right? So when they heard this, when they heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Uh, the, uh, the authorized version says, this is a hard saying. Difficult, hard. Uh, it's actually the word sclerosis, uh, or scleros. So we use uh, in uh, our English, in the medical field, arteriosclerosis, which means the hardening of the arteries. So scleros, difficult, in a figurative sense, metaphorically just means stern, unpleasant, uh, hard in the sense that it's rough. Uh, therefore, it's offensive. It is intolerable uh, to the ear. When they heard this, they said, this is a difficult, or this is a hard statement. Who, who can listen to it? Again, when they heard what? Well, again, the entire statement. This means the entire statement, the entire sermon, the entire discourse on him being the bread of life, the entire truth that he alone is the person where salvation is found, that he and he alone through his death, through the cross that he will endure, and, and repentance and faith alone in him, that's how eternal life comes. The fact that men have to believe that, the, men, the fact that men have to come, and just like you take food, have to assimilate that into your body. They have to assimilate him. They have to take him in completely, who he is, what he's done. They have to metaphorically eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. Again, the understanding and realize that he alone is the bread that gives life. He alone is the bread that came down out of heaven. And if anybody takes this bread, they'll live forever. Manna, or the bread that he gave them on the seashore, is physical bread, sustains the physical life, but people who take of that die. This is bread that will last forever. And if they don't eat, if they don't take, if they don't assimilate, then they have no hope of eternal life. Now, they don't like that. They don't like it in the context, and nobody likes it today, right? The modern world doesn't like the message anymore than the people who are listening to it there on the, uh, on the shore and then into the, to the synagogue. They don't like it. Why? Because it's too harsh. It's too rough. It's too difficult. Too stiff. Too inflexible. Too narrow. It's too offensive. The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. It's a foolish message. Why would you believe that nonsense? Why would you waste your time? A couple of people made mention of it, and it's true. It's a beautiful day outside, right? Why wouldn't you, why would you waste your time coming into this building and listening to some guy talk for an hour when you could be out living it up on a Sunday morning? Right? That's the way the world looks at the message of the cross. Foolishness. The message is offensive. They could not comprehend what he was saying. They couldn't comprehend the fact that he repeatedly claimed that he was the one who came down out of heaven. I have come down out of heaven. I am the bread or the living bread that has come down out of heaven. And they completely rejected that truth. And they completely rejected the truth when he said in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. They're very happy with the religious system they built. And Christ says something, again, counter-cultural, counter to the religious system they are a part of. No one comes unless the Father draws. Verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. And again, the Jewish idea of Messiah when he came is that he would be somebody who would be a political conqueror, someone who would conquer Israel's enemy, someone who would usher in an age of peace and prosperity. Not that he would die. Again, they're looking for a political deliverer. They're not looking for a suffering sacrifice. And the very idea that he comes and tries to pass himself off or wants them to believe the fact that he is the Messiah, uh, one who would come and die, and that he's going to come and give his life uh, for the world. Stop and think about what they listen to. When they're, when they're hearing that, they're listening to the world being Gentiles. And they didn't like the idea of Messiah dying for the world because the Gentiles, they considered them as dogs. And they certainly didn't want dogs in their kingdom. Verse 53, Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. Verse 54, he eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Again, the whole idea of eating his flesh drinking his blood the graphic language is again completely offensive to them and they could not see past the physical to the spiritual implications of the truth that he was teaching them and again the whole idea that their system that the jewish religious system judaism wasn't enough to get them into heaven was again countercultural to their thinking 
It goes against their preconceived ideas of Messiah, his kingdom, their standing. I mean, they're Jews. They're sons of Abraham. They're already in the kingdom. They already think they have right standing before, before God. And Christ says, no, that's not true. Many, therefore, of his disciples, his followers, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Now, again, it doesn't mean they didn't hear it. It doesn't mean his statement was incomprehensible. It just means that his statement was unacceptable. The sermon was unacceptable. The sermon was hard to tolerate, hard to the feelings, shocking to the mind, as one has said. They rejected his words because they saw it as offensive. Uh, Again, in the King James, it says, who can listen or who can hear? Right? Who can receive it? Who can obey such a hard saying as this? They couldn't see their need of him as the Savior. They couldn't see, remember, in the context in which he's speaking about eating and drinking the Passover, they couldn't see their need for him as the Passover lamb. Because, again, they're self-satisfied, self-righteous, religious individuals. And their false Jewish religious system, again, they thought those things were good enough to commend them to God. They thought in in the system, in their own persons, they were good enough to be commended to God. So they grumble. They murmur. Again, I told you last time, I find it interesting that he doesn't back off. He just keeps pressing the issue forward. Verse 55. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Verse 56. Who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me and I in him. Verse 58. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. It's hard to listen to. Who can listen to it? Verse 61, again, just pressing forward, Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, says, does this cause you to stumble? The word scandalizo is the word stumble, scandalize in the English. So the false followers, the ones that had attached themselves to him for a period of time, when they're confronted with the truth, when he, Christ makes difficult statements, they were scandalized by his claims. Again, the repeated claim that he's come down from heaven, verse 33, 38, 41, 42, 50, 51. His proclamation that he is the only answer to mankind's spiritual problems, verse 33, 35, verse 40. The call for them to eat his flesh, to drink his blood, 51 through 57. They were scandalized by those, those facts. And it has been noted by others, it wasn't that these people are shut out of the kingdom of heaven because Jesus' teaching is unacceptable. It is them in their unbelief to accept the reality of what he speaks. Right? The intolerance of the message is on the receptor's side. It's their unbelief to accept the reality of what he's just said. It's the hardness of their heart. It's their unwillingness. It is, in reality, their teachable hearts because the same message, right? The word of the cross to those who are perishing is foolishness, but to those who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the the clay. It's the same message. It's the receiver's part. It's their hardness of heart. It's their unteachableness. Now, you go back and look at this text of Scripture, when they're murmuring and grumbling and complaining, you will notice that nowhere in this portion of Scripture where the, diff- where the disciples are having a difficult time understanding the statements of Christ, you will notice no one comes forward and asks Jesus a question somewhere along the lines of, Lord, we're confused, can you help us understand? That question is never asked. But rather, verse 61, Jesus was conscious that his disciples grumbled at this says, does this cause you to stumble or to be scandalized? There's a lot of people like that. A lot of people who grumble. A lot of people who are false followers of Christ, who, as long as they perceive Jesus to be the, the source of physical, personal blessings for them, they're willing to follow him. But again, if he ever comes and makes a harsh demand, if he comes and makes demands that men would... Uh, acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy, to confess their sin, to commit themselves to him in total, they become offended. 
They grumble, they complain. They're not interested in having Christ and the truth explained to them. They're just interested in grumbling. Same thing in, in general. There are certain truths uh, that people are confronted with biblically. And many people don't have teachable hearts to receive that truth. I, I've been in this pulpit for going on 17 years. And I know you're going to find this as a shock, but there have been some people over those 17 years that have not agreed with me. A few. And out of that group of people who've been offended at something that I have said, more properly something that I have taught from the Bible, the vast majority of those people have never come to me and address their issue. The vast majority of people have never come to talk about it. They've never come to ask a question or to get clarity on the issue. The vast majority of people who do not agree, what they have done is they have grumbled and complained to others. Not to me, to others, and then they leave. They don't ask uh, for, they don't ask questions, they don't seek for clarity, because they don't have teachable hearts. And ultimately, they won't submit themselves to the Word of God. And rather, what they do is they sit in judgment over what they have heard. They sit in judgment over me, who is nobody other than the messenger of God's Word. That's why I say repeatedly that I don't write the stuff, I just read it. This is what it says. If you can show me it doesn't say what it says, then I'm willing to sit down and talk to you. But people don't do that. They grumble, they complain, they leave. They don't ask questions, they don't seek for clarity. They leave and they go and find another pastor who will agree with them on whatever their issue is. And there's plenty of them out there. Stephen Cole, who's a retired pastor, uh, gives this warning, however. He says, when you come to God's word with that kind of an attitude, you won't grow in your walk with God. You may not like what the Bible says about God's sovereignly choosing some for salvation and passing over others, but Jesus repeatedly teaches that in this chapter, and it is taught from Genesis to Revelation. The starting place for growing in the Lord is when his word confronts you with things you don't like. It is to humble your heart before the Lord and ask him for understanding. If you reject it because you don't like it, you're sitting in judgment on God's word and you won't grow. He goes on to say, he says, this applies to many difficult areas where the Bible goes against our culture or against our preferences. The role of women in the home and in the church, homosexuality, sexual purity, divorce, hell, etc. But if we accept only the parts of the Bible that fit with what we like, then we are not following Jesus as Lord, but rather ourselves as Lord. We're just using certain parts of the Bible that we agree with to support our own biases. To be a Christian, he says, is to submit to the teachings of Jesus, and uh, Jesus believed in God's word as the truth. That's a good statement, right? We've got to humble ourselves. I tell you often here, you may not like what I say, but I've not liked it for the entire week. You only have to listen to it for an hour. I have to listen it run, running around in my head all week long. It's the same message that you hear is the same message that I hear. I'm not the authority in the room. I say that all the time. It's the word of God is the authority. We're all called to humble ourselves under the word of God. Stephen Cole's statement is very helpful. Arthur Pink has one that's a little more straightforward in his observation of this kind of activity. He says, when Jesus knew himself, that his disciples murmured that they did not come directly to Christ and openly state their difficulties, that they did not ask him to explain his, this meaning and why, because, Pink says, they're not really anxious for light. Had they been so, they would have sought it, they would have sought it from him. Again, we say how like human nature today. When the Lord's messenger delivers a word that is distasteful to his hearers, they are not many, uh, they are not manly enough to come to him and tell him their grievance. Far less will they approach him seeking their help. No, like the miserable cowards they are, they will sulk in the background, seeking to sow seeds of dissension by criticizing what they have heard. And such people, the servant of God, will have no difficulty in placing. They may wear the badge of disciples, but he will know from their actions and speech they are not believers. That's a little more straightforward. Pulling no punches. 
Many, therefore, of the disciples, when they heard this, said it's a difficult a statement who can listen to it. Again, verse 61, Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, the uh, New English translation says Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining about his speech. Uh, Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, it says in the authorized version. Jesus conscious, Jesus aware, Jesus knew in himself. Again, another reference to his deity. Because he knows all things, because all things, because he's God incarnate, he knows the heart of man. He didn't get any additional information from anybody. Just by his own divine omniscience, he knew it was going on in their hearts by what he said. He said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Does this cause you to be scandalized? Does what I say offend you? And listen, all he told them was the truth, right? All he told them was the truth. Right? That's all he told them. The only thing he told them, the truth. Eternal truth, eternal life truth, doctrinal truth. And yet again, they have taken offense to the words that he has spoken. Again, it's the words of Christ, the specific words that offend people. I I often say you need to listen to what a man says when he preaches. And you need to listen to what a man does not say when he preaches. Because there are some messages that come under the banner of Christian that could be preached in the Mormon tabernacle. There are some messages that come under the banner of Christian that could be be preached in a Catholic assembly that aren't distinctively Christ-centered, Christ-exalting. What does a man say and what does he not say? And you pick that up after a period of time of listening to people. And people were offended by Christ because he spoke very clearly and very directly and kept pressing the issue. And they were offended by the words he spoke again arthur pink says how solemn is this these men could not deceive christ Uh, they might have uh, walked with him for a time they might have uh, posed as his disciples they might have taken their place in the synagogue listened with seeming attention and reverence while he taught but he knew their hearts those they could not hide from him nor can men do so today he is not misled by the religiosity of the day the eyes of Uh, His eyes of uh, fire pierce through every mask of hypocrisy. Learn then the consummate folly and other worthlessness of a form of godliness without the power. And again, the power is found in the word of God, right? He spoke the truth. They didn't like the truth. He says, does this cause you to stumble? Does this cause you to be scandalized? J.C. Ralph says, murmurs and complaints of this kind are very common. It must never surprise us to hear them. They have been, they are, they will be as long as the world stands. To some Christ's sayings appear too hard to understand. To others, in the present case, they appear too hard to believe or still harder to obey. It is just one of the many ways in which the natural corruption of man shows itself. So long as the heart is naturally proud, worldly, unbelieving, and fond of self-indulgence, if not of sin, so long there will never be wanting people who will say, of Christian doctrines and precepts, or so long will there ever be, uh, so long will there never be wanting people who will say of Christian doctrines and precepts these things are so too hard. Uh, who can hear them? Right, the hardness of mankind's heart, the love for sin, uh, the love for the world. There's always going to be people again who have a problem with uh, the Word of Christ. And again, what we need to do is we need to humble ourselves. We need to humble ourselves under the teaching of the Word of God, the Word of Christ. Jesus was conscious that his disciples grumbled when he said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Verse 62, he says, what then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? Again, I think it's amazing. He doesn't back off one whit. He just keeps pressing truth after truth forward. He's already told them things that they're having a difficult time for or a difficult time with. He doesn't take a pause. He just keeps pressing it. He's already referred to the fact of his divine incarnation divine incarnation, that he is the bread that has come down out of heaven. So he's claiming deity, he's claiming pre-existence. He's told them that he's going to die. He's going to die of death by violence. He keeps speaking of the mention of his blood, and that is a reference to that. He has said repeatedly they're going to have to eat his flesh and drink his blood if they want eternal life. And apart from doing that, they have no life within them. Again, that's causing their heads to explode on a variety of different levels, and it's the truth. Now he tells them he's going to ascend back into heaven 
going to refer return to the place where he's come which in, again evolves uh, involves after his death a resurrection right so in essence he's saying look guys i know you're having a very difficult time with the fact that i've come down f- from heaven and i know that you're having a very difficult time with everything that i've told you so far that eternal life is found only in me well guess what what if you happen to see me ascend to where i was previously Right? If you don't believe that I have come from heaven, will you believe when you see me ascend back where I have come from? Is that going to convince you of my heavenly origins? Now again, obviously most of the people in the crowd here probably did not see him do that. A few did. He turned over in the book of Acts. You see that there's a the faithful. They saw him go back into heaven. They saw two angels appear and next to where Jesus was previously standing on the mount saying, what are you doing looking up? He's coming back at some point, right? just as the way he's gone up. Vast majority of the crowd uh, never saw that. But he's going back because that's what he said, and that's the reality of what happened. What then if you if uh, you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? John MacArthur points out that there are some commentators uh, to uh, who see this is a reference of, of ascending. Again, implied in that is his crucifixion. He talks about it in John three fourteen. You'll speak about it later in John twelve thirty two to thirty four. That leads to his resurrection, then to his ascension. So there are some commentators, according to this view. When the Lord makes this statement, he, he's making a statement not just about the fact that he's going to ascend into heaven, but the false disciples, if they have been scandalized up to this point, how much more are they going to be scandalized by his execution? And again, he's tried as a, as a criminal. He dies. A few days later, the, the, he, he, he appears, and, and the Holy Spirit comes, and people who once are in terror start to believe in this person who's been executed by the state as a criminal, executed by the Jewish religious system as somebody who is um, uh, uh, an apostate. And the reason the church exists is because of the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's saying, look, to the the reality, folks, uh, you you think what I've said so far is hard. It's going to be much more difficult when I rise from the dead. You're going to be scandalized, offended by my execution. Right, so Jesus kind of leaves the question open-ended uh, because it's all response. It's all uh, a, a reference, or in reference to how his hearers listen to what he says, to the level they're either going to believe or not believe. Verse sixty-three says, "It is the Spirit who gives life," or in, in the King James, it says, "The Spirit that quickeneth." Right, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. It's the Spirit who gives life. Right, again, spiritual life comes only when. The person of the Holy Spirit imparts life to the believer. It doesn't come by our own efforts. Did, did, we, not, did we not sing a song about that this morning? Not from my own hands, right? It, it, it's when the Holy Spirit comes and, and gives life. It's not through the will of the flesh. It's exactly what John says at the beginning of his gospel, John 1 and 12. As many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, verse 13, who are born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Jesus says a similar thing in John uh, uh, 3 and uh, 6, starting in John 3, 5. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel, Nicodemus, that I said you have to be born again, right? It's the Spirit that gives life. It's the Spirit that quickens. Again, this is exactly what he said back in verse 44. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And as I told you previously, one old commentator references this. He says, there must be life before there could be the activities of life. Believing on Christ is a manifestation of the divine life already in the one who believes. Right? That The guys who are charging the hill that have taken machine gun fire that fall down, the commander says, get up. The ones who get up, get up because they have life already in them, not because get up gives them life. No, they have life because they get up because God has allowed them to have that life. And the people who believe are the ones that God has already done the work. It's the Spirit. We believe because the Spirit opens our eyes, our minds, our ears. Again, think back to the day before you believed. And I know some of you have grown up in... In Christian homes, perhaps, maybe you don't have a, a, a day that you can really think of. But for those of us who did not grow up in, the, in Christian's homes, think, think about the day before you believed when the Word of God made no sense to you, and then all of a sudden it made sense to you. What's the difference? It's nothing that you've done, not by my hands. 
It's not by the flesh, it's by the word of God. It's by the quickening work of the person of the Holy Spirit. He takes that which was at one time foolishness to us and makes it the most wonderful proclamation. And we survey the wondrous cross cross on which the Prince of Glory died, right? Uh, we, we see all of our sin, all of our shame hanging there. And we see the glory of the Son of God who came into this world for us. And we marvel. We stand amazed at grace. We, we love the Savior who gave us life. It's the Spirit who gives life. It's the Holy Spirit that does the work of regeneration. It's the regenerating work of the person of the Holy Spirit that brings the sinner from death to life. The Spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And and again, spiritual life comes to the believer, the unbeliever, only when the the Holy Spirit imparts that life. Uh, Again, Arthur Pink, who I found helpful this week, he says, Indeed, this is a searching word that is greatly needed to be emphasized today. And today, the day in which he's writing those words, just for your reference, is 1945. He says, indeed, the searching word that greatly needs emphasized today, the flesh profits nothing. The flesh has no part in the work of God. All fleshly activities amount to nothing where the regeneration of dead sinners is concerned. Neither the logical arguments advanced by the mind, hypnotic powers brought on by, uh, brought to bear upon the will, touching appeals made by or made to the emotions, beautiful music, hearty singing. Uh, to catch the ear nor sensuous trappings to draw the eye none of these things are the slightest avail to stirring dead sinners it is not the choir nor the preacher but the spirit that quickeneth he says this is very distasteful to the natural man because it's so humbling that is why it is completely ignored in the great majority of our modern evangelistic campaigns what is urgently needed today 1945 What is urgently needed today is not mesmeric experts who have made a study of how to produce religious atmospheres or religious showmen to make the people laugh one minute and then weep the next, but faithful preaching of God's word with the saints on their faces before God, humbly praying that he may be pleased to send his quickening spirit into their midst. That's what we need. The Spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are of life. Again, it's the the quickening works, the regenerating work of the person of the Holy Spirit. That's That's what those need who have been offended by his teaching. They could not discern spiritual truth. Until they had spiritual life, they needed to be born again. Nicodemus, all your religious standing, all of your your high office, all of your knowledge doesn't matter. You have to be born again. You must have that spiritual life. You must be brought from death to life. You must be quickened to hear by the Spirit, the Spirit of God, because the flesh profits nothing. All the religious activities, all the religious learnings, are not going to make anybody capable of getting into heaven. Every man needs new birth. So again, the spirit who gives life, uh, it's the spirit who gives life, and it's the flesh that profits nothing. And again, Christ says to this group of people, it's the words. The words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. It's the word of God. Again, the word of God and the spirit is the divine agent. The Word of God is the divine instrument that brings forth spiritual life. The Holy Spirit is the divine agent. Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, right? The Word of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. The Word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. 1 Thessalonians 2 and 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it is, the word of God that performs its work in you that believe. James 1 and 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, first fruits among his creatures. James 1 and 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. First Peter one twenty three. You have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. Luke one or Luke eighteen eleven. Here's the parable. He says the seed is the word. 
Verse 15, the seed is the good soil. And these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest, good heart and hold fast to it and bear fruit. Luke 8 and 20, uh, it is reported to them, your mother and your brother are standing outside wishing to see you. He answered and said to them, my brother, uh, uh, my brother, uh, who are they? They're the ones who hear the word of God and do it, right? It's the word of God. The spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit. They are life. Again, it's the Holy Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit does the regenerating work and uses the word of God, the word of Christ, divine truth. And, and again, the need of this day, the need of every day, just as Arthur Pink said, is the faithful proclamation of the truth. The faithful proclamation proclamation of the word of God because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It's God's words that are life-giving. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, when I came to you, Paul says, Brethren, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my message and my preaching are not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Again, he could have came to them because he's a tremendously intelligent individual. He could have brought worldly wisdom, but he didn't. He had one sermon in his pocket. One. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he wasn't counting on his eloquence. He was counting on the power of God through the preached word to bring people to a knowledge of the truth. Again, what we need this day, every day, is the preaching of the word, faithful preaching of the word of God. We don't need stories. We don't need entertainment. And the vast majority of the quote-unquote church has turned to those methodologies. We don't need more rhetoric. We don't need more uh, 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 talking hot air. We, we don't need human wisdom. We, we don't need to bring human philosophies into the church, try to put a little bit of a Christian veneer on it, and say, well, it may be helpful for us to understand the world. We don't need to bring that trash into our fellowships. All we need is the Word of God. We just need a straightforward proclamation of the truth, the Word of God, a straightforward, simple declaration of the truth. Because sinners will never be saved apart from it. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. It's the Spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And again, it's the Holy Spirit who uses the Word of God, who imparts new life to sinners so that they can understand divine truth. It's the Word, the Spirit. Verse 64. Jesus says, But there's some of you who do not believe. For I knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. Again, side by side, you have these twin great doctrinal truths. You have divine sovereignty over the realm of salvation. It is the Spirit who gives life. And then you have human responsibility. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Again, what God says is true, and man has a responsibility to believe it. But he can't until... God quickens his spirit and allows him to listen with ears that can hear, yet that inability does not remove his responsibility. All that inability does is prove his culpability. It proves the fact that what God says is true, that he is a sinner, that he has rejected God's word, that he is rejecting God's mercy, that he's not listening to God's offer of grace through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are in life. Again, the Lord puts the responsibility right back upon the man for his unbelief. Verse 64, there are some of you who don't believe. doesn't say anything in there about election. It says some of you don't believe. There are always those who reject God's offer of salvation, God's free offer of salvation through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I've told you repeatedly, unbelief is never about evidence. Unbelief is never about lack of information. Unbelief is always about lack of faith. Unbelief is always hardness of heart. Unbelief is willful. It is a willful rejection of the truth. And listen, unbelief is sin. It's flat-out sin. Unbelief is the greatest sign of depravity. All of the stuff that men do in the depraved state, the greatest sign of depravity is unbelief. 
And the Lord Jesus Christ himself holds these people who are listening to him, whether it's the Jewish religious leaders or the people in the crowd, he holds these people who are following him personally responsible for rejecting him. Not because they could not understand, because they would not believe. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. The Lord said the same thing back in John chapter 3, verse 17. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. The world should be saved through him, verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come in the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. That's the issue. The message is too difficult, too narrow, and men actually like their sin. Just cut to the chase. Stop messing around. Men like their sin. This is the judgment. Light has come in the world. Men love darkness rather than the light. Men love their sin more than they love the truth. And the horrifying reality is those who refuse God's mercy, those who refuse the, the gospel of grace will get exactly what they want. A godless and a Christless eternity. And again, as I've told you before, nobody goes to hell against their will. Those who refuse to come to God and his free offer of salvation through his son will end up justly paying the penalty for their error for all eternity when God out of his kindness has sent a substitute so that you don't have to pay that penalty. We have been looking at it in our evening study, which I highly encourage you to be a part of, in the book of Romans. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. What, what did our, our friend uh, Mr. Bonner say? Not what my hands have done, right? It's free. Want salvation? You want eternal life? Free. How much does it cost you? It costs you everything, but Christ provides it for you through his own body, right? Not by your efforts, not by what your hands have done. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So therefore, one more time, I beg you on behalf of Christ. If you've not done so already up to this moment, before it's too late, don't harden your heart. While it's still a day of grace, if you've not done so, then immediately stop where you are, bow your head, repent, come to Christ, end your rebellion before it is eternally too late for you. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I've spoken to you, their spirit, their life. There's some of you who don't believe. Do you see what he's doing? He is pressing the issue again forward. He's pressing this group of unbelievers to believe. There's some of you who don't believe. Believe. What's causing them not to believe? They are. Again, he knew that this large group of people, this so-called disciples, were nothing more than false followers. They press or they profess to follow Christ, but in reality, they didn't believe. John makes a kind of a parenthetical statement here in verse 64. He says, For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who was going to betray him. Again, another evidence of divine sovereignty, another evidence that Christ is none other than the Son of God, who he claims to be, because that's who he is. Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did, who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Again, this is none other than Judas Iscariot, one of the Lord's own apostles. And Lord willing, I'll have more to say about him and his betrayal next week. But this is another piece of evidence that false profession, even those most close to Christ, false profession shouldn't surprise us. Again, the one who's most close to Christ. And if the one who's most close to Christ betrays him, we should not be surprised when that happens to us in ministry with somebody that we have been walking with. Someone, again, we poured our life into, someone whom we love and turn their back on us and turn their back on Christ. Verse 65. And he was saying, For this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted from, granted him from the Father. Again, he's repeating what he said back in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He's still addressing their responsibility. 
He's still pressing upon them their moral inability, affirming their need of divine power to work within them, furnishing them proof that their own effort, their flesh profits nothing, and what he is trying to do is humble them. He's not shutting them out before God. He's telling them that they need to turn to God the Father and call out to God the Father for mercy. That God the Father would call or would draw them to himself. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Because without that divine mercy and power, they're never going to come to Christ. They're never going to be saved. They won't come. They can't come. They're responsible to come. Are you having a tension in your heart? I was telling my wife this last week. I've got to give up my Calvinist card, and I've long given up my Arminian card. Uh, and none of those groups are ever going to invite me to a, to a program. Although I think Calvinism is biblical, hyper-Calvinism is not. Most of the times I never use these words um, from the pulpit because when I say these words, people normally have a caricature in their mind what they think they mean. And so if you've got hyper-Calvinistic tendencies, you've got a little problem up the back of your spine because I'm talking about free grace because grace is free and Christ is bidding everybody to come. If you're a little more towards the Arminian leaning, you're going, I don't know about this election stuff. My own free will, I made that choice. I, I didn't write it. The flesh profits nothing. I didn't write that. I didn't say those words. The Bible is where we want to land. We need to be balanced. Again, it's two train tracks if you want parallel truths. Everybody gets what they want in biblical theology. You want forgiveness of sin, salvation, full and free? Jesus Christ has paid that penalty. Repent, come to the Savior today. You're happy without God and happy without Christ in time. You love your sin more than you do your eternal soul. You'll get exactly what you want. You'll get a godless and Christless eternity. And Jesus, however, who's very biblical, of course, he just keeps pressing the issue upon them. You need to turn to God. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Does it read that way in your Bible in Romans chapter 10, verse 13? Does whoever mean whoever? I think it probably means that. He keeps pressing the crowd because God desires that none would perish, but all would come to a knowledge of the truth. God so loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. We need to be biblical. As a result of this, verse 66, many of his disciples withdrew and he were not walking with him anymore. Now, as a result of this, could actually be translated from this time. Both translations are correct. As a result of this, or from this time, many of his disciples withdrew. Uh, the New English translation, many of the disciples quit following him. Uh, the ESV, many of his disciples turned back. The authorized says, from this time, many of the disciples went back and walked with him no more. We're done. Had enough. They abandon all pretense. These false followers, they desert Christ, they defect. As a result of this, as a result of his teaching, where he refers to himself as the bread of life, the vast majority of people turn away from him. As one writer has said, F.F. F. Bruce, he says, what they wanted, he would not give them, and what he offered, they would not receive. Right? What he offered, they, what, he, uh, what they wanted, he wouldn't give them, and what he offered, they would not receive. They wanted their bellies fed. They wanted a king who would meet every need they wanted in, in a physical world, and he's offering them salvation for their souls. They're not interested. That's why the guys that are the, the, the social gospelers of our day, the health and welfare guys but, but profit so much uh, because they're selling people what they want. A Jesus who, again, is like a Gumby action figure. You shape him or a genie. He'll give you everything you want here in time and life. You may not get everything you want here in time and life. If you're a follower of Christ, I, I think the, the Bible tells us that we may face persecution. Is Christ worthy to follow if we face that persecution? And I would say that the Bible says, of course. So here you got this group of people. How many? I don't know. A lot. 
Remember when he feeds the evening before, there's somewhere between 20 to 25,000 people perhaps uh, on the shore feeding them. A whole bunch of people follow him uh, the next morning. Uh, they, they want breakfast, thousands upon thousands of people. And when he offers to them what they really need, which is spiritual food, many of the so-called disciples stop following him. And why did they leave him? They left him because of his words. They didn't want to hear it anymore. They didn't want to hear what he said, what he had to say. And again, this is the sad reality of the day in which we live. Some people will follow Christ for a moment, for a period of time, but they'll walk away. Many will walk away when they're faced with the hard truths of the Word of God. Now, in midst of this widespread defection, countless people, and when we've gone to, uh, uh, like, uh, to Brazil and done outreaches with uh, sporting events, and literally hundreds of people are watching the sporting event, and we stop and present the gospel, it's a very vivid picture to me because I've seen hundreds of people just turn and walk the opposite direction. They were there for the entertainment, but when the truth came, the word of God came, they just walked away. So in the context here, in the midst of literally people walking away, widespread defection of people who profess to be followers of Christ, Jesus turns to the twelve. Verse 67, Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Verse 68, Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Again, just like I've said all along, it's not his works, it's his words. His words. You have words of eternal life. It's not his compassion. It's not his demonstration of uh, mercy. It's not his even the demonstration of his deity. And when he produces the fish and the bread, and when he heals people, it's what he says that offends the, the vast majority of the people. That's why across the pulpits of this country, you have so many churches that never take the word of God and open it up. And most people who, if they do assemble on a Sunday morning, they're not hearing from the word of God because the preacher wants you to stay. I would like for you to stay, but I ultimately don't care. It's not my church. I do care. But you know what I'm saying? It's not my issue to give you a message that you want to hear. It's my, 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 my task is to preach the word of God. What does God say? What does God want you to hear? Simon Peter said, look, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And again, Christ, what is he doing? What is he saying that's so offensive? He's saying, look, this is how you can have forgiveness of sin. This is how you can have your sins forgiven, how you can come into fellowship with God. This is how you can have salvation. Repent. Turn from your sin. Believe upon me, the person of Jesus Christ, in total. Assimilate me. Take me in. Most people won't do that. Most people won't do that. Simon Peter, again, who's the spokesman of the group? Simon Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. Verse 69, And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So what the crowd would not acknowledge, the twelve do. We, we know the reality of who you are. You have the words of life, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's why John writes this gospel, remember? That people would know and believe who Jesus Christ really is. The twelve believe, yet within that group of twelve, which Jesus has pointed out, he's going to say something that is going to be very shocking to the others. Verse 70. Jesus answered them, did I myself, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? Verse 71. I met Judas, the son of Simon, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, again, as I said at the top of the hour, there's a whole lot more in those last few verses that I've just kind of rushed through, right? And Lord willing, we'll have an opportunity to go back and look through those more fully uh, next time. I told you that Judas is really the prototype of spiritual defection. The crowd initially likes Jesus when he's giving them things they want. They follow him until he says things they don't want to hear, which are true, but they don't want to hear it, therefore they leave. And Judas, who is so close to Christ. Again, no man ever walked more closely the truth than the person of Judas. Other disciples have no idea. John reveals it here. 
that he's the betrayer. And his life ends in utter tragedy. His eternality is utterly tragic as he rejects and turns upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are a few, like Peter, a few like many of you in the room, who persevere even when you hear the hard truths of the Word of God, who persevere even through the difficulties of life. Because the question is, where shall we go? Where are we going to go? Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. And we believe and have come to know that he is the Holy One of God. Amen? Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this opportunity to look at your word here and thankful for the words that you have left uh, us from uh, John um, as he has penned these words of Christ, that Christ is our only hope, that Christ is the bread uh, of life. And we're thankful for that offer of free salvation through your Son, our Savior. And for thus, those of us who know you, we're so thankful that you in your kindness have opened our hearts that we might believe the truth and turn to our dear Savior and have freely uh, received a life that he gives to us uh, as our substitute. We love you, we love your word, and we thank you for your kindness and your mercy to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.